So our reading for today is Psalm 27, a psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Good morning. One of the reasons why I chose Psalm 27 to preach on this morning is because when you're doing one one sermon, uh, Psalms are easy to go to. And one of the things I laid out for our children and our youth is to memorize psalms throughout the summers. And um, I hope to make the case this morning for why memorizing psalms in particular is so helpful for developing a spiritual life. We want to develop spiritual lives in our children and in our youth. Um, So to use the summer as a time to memorize this. And in years past, we've done this. Um, One of the avenues that we do this is in our summer camping trip, which is always well attended by our teenagers. And surprisingly enough, In three days, usually just about every single one of our teenagers memorizes the entire psalm in just those three days as we devote our attention to it. It's it's really quite interesting how they are able to do that when they're challenged by it. So um, I'm proud of them, but also just uh, calling uh, us to uh, pass on a vision of memorization um, of the psalms to our children. Um, There's a a sheet over on the family ministries table that outlines just some practical how-tos of how to do this. Uh, You can use the the whole summer to do it, just bite off uh, just small chunks at a time, and it's amazing what you can accomplish. Um, So let's pray, and let's dive into Psalm 27. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the Psalms. We thank you that they meet us in life situations, and we're thankful, Lord God, that they teach us how to relate to you, the living God, in the context of those life situations. 
We thank you that you have spoken to every facet of life, and we thank you that you have defined with clarity how we should respond, how we should assess, how we should diagnose what our needs really are. So I just ask God that you would give us grace this morning as we consider Psalm 27. Lord God, may you speak to us, may you instruct our hearts, may you teach us, Lord God, to believe in you and to trust in your holy name. We pray that you would be here now through this preaching of this sermon. We ask, Lord God, that you would take all of the preparation and that you would use it for the good of not only my own heart, but for the hearts of everybody here who is hearing this and everybody who will hear this. We desire that you would build up your church and that you would bring us to completion and we go forward in the confidence, Lord God, knowing that you will bring your work to completion. So we thank you again for this opportunity to gather in your house to worship your name. We pray, Lord God, that your word would speak to us now. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. So I want, you to, I want to invite you guys to think about the prayer requests, particularly via emails that you receive. Now, I'm not picking on anything here. But consider the, the kind of the chain of emails that you might get and the types of prayer requests that you might get through that. What do they typically deal with and how do they see solutions? Now, I want to suggest to you and maybe present this to you in a bit of a provocative way that King David may have sent an email, right? And no doubt he would have been a, a Gmail user. He just seems like that type of person. But... Uh, uh, so King David, with his Gmail account, sends you an email, and you have his email sitting in your inbox. I thought about what it might look like in the context of Psalm 27. What would you read? And I put it up there because it's a little bit lengthy. Here's what I suggest. And of course, uh, by the way, King David didn't have a Gmail account. He didn't have email. So you wouldn't have received an email. So this is all made up. Um, but perhaps something along these lines. Please pray for me and my men. We're under siege. Even though I'm innocent, there are lies being spread about me in order to put me to death. I have been anointed king, but face the constant threat of injustice and violence. We are on the run. Nights are especially difficult. We are in danger of deadly animals and in danger of adversaries looking to do violence to me. The darkness is thick as a cloak and we are reluctant to use torches of fire so as not to expose ourselves to those who are tracking us day and night. I am tired and overwhelmed. I am not sure how much more emotional bandwidth I have to deal with the constant threat of danger. The temptation to despair is very great, and on top of this, I'm learning to trust that God my Father will not forsake me like my earthly mother and father have. Psalm 27 meets us in the twisted and snarly roads of life where we encounter fear and where we deal with pain. And even better yet, it doesn't just meet us there to hang out with us, but it sets up a ladder at the bottom of our pits and it says to us, there is a way out and here it is. Here is the way out. Now, if we can put ourselves back into David's shoes, I wonder, can you feel the pain that he feels 
if you've had to deal with the forsaking of your parents? Can you feel his anxiety? Armies camping at his door, looking for war, looking for any possible way to kill him and shed his blood. The question is, what do you pray for in that situation? Where you need real solutions. You have real problems. And I'm not just talking about David. All of us have real problems for which we need real solutions, don't we? There is real reason in this world to be fearful. There's real reason in this world to be hurt. What solutions do we seek? What do we ask God for? Let me suggest something that you wouldn't ask God for. You wouldn't ask God for, or you wouldn't say this, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Now, I don't mean to insult any of us here, And by the way, I know some of you would ask for that. But not before you were trained by this psalm. Before Psalm 27 has entered into your life and suggested that this should be the way that we respond to situations like that, I don't think any of us would respond that way. The week before last, I was, I was fishing in Canada. There I was, fishing away, enjoying fishing. What's not to enjoy about fishing? So I was memorizing the psalm along the way during that week. And on one particular day, my dad and I, we were out on the boat fishing for lake trout. Uh, a little bit harder to catch. You have to go to a particular part of the lake. And there we were in the same boat using virtually identical lures, same kind of bait, and one lure is catching all the fish, and one lure is not catching any fish. Lure A catches all the fish, lure B catches all the fish. This is the the classic tale of the two guys in the same boat doing the same thing. One of them catches all the fish, the other one is left out. I was the one who was left out. It's okay, I've worked through some things. I can talk about it now. Time is a great healer. There I am in the boat, and one thing leads to another, and before you know it, there I am kind of praying to the Lord, Lord, let me catch a fish. I sprinkle some self-pity in there. I don't ask for much, just one lake. And then, of course, Psalm 27 comes kind of crashing in to my reality. One thing I asked of the Lord that I will seek after Now, is it a sin to pray that you would catch a fish? No, it's not a sin. It's not unbiblical. But it's interesting how even in that moment, I'm not facing war. I'm not facing enemies at my door. And already I'm caving in. Lord, I don't ask for much. Just give me a fish. One thing I ask of the Lord that I will seek after. And I hope that you would all agree that this 
that, 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 that there seems to be a massive incongruence with verses 1 through 3 and then verse 4. There's enemies at the door. I, ho- I, I, want, I want you guys to feel this. I hope you guys can agree with me. There's enemies at the door. There's people who want my blood. One thing I ask, and that will I seek after. Doesn't it seem like an incongruence to you? Lord, just show me your beauty. I can think of a lot of other things I would be praying in that moment. And I think if you guys are honest, you'd probably say, yeah, I can think of some other things too. How do we make sense of verses 1 through 3? And then verse 4 with this, what seems to be incongruent. How is this prayer request connected to those first three verses? And I think this is why we need the Word of God. One of the functions of the Psalms is to straighten our heart's trajectories, right? To straighten our heart's trajectories towards, towards God. And when the situations of life happen and our hearts feel what they feel and they want what they want and they do what they do and they love what they love, how do we respond to that? The Psalms are there in those situations to, quote, profoundly shape how we relate to God. And that we don't just read the Psalms, but they are divinely ordained way to learn devotion to our God, end quote. Tim Keller. Another quote by Tim Keller, Psalms anticipate and train you for every possible spiritual, social, and emotional condition. They show you what the dangers are, what you should keep in mind, what your attitude should be, and how to talk to God about it, and how to get from God the help that you really need. You'll notice that as much as David is a wonderful example for us to follow in verse 4, he also is a work in progress. We'll take great delight in seeing this. He's a great example to us in verse 4. He shows us how our hearts should be straightened out towards God. But he's also a work in progress as well. You can see that he's tempted to fear, which is natural when there's people who want to eat your flesh. You can see that he's dealing with pain and healing from rejection, which is natural when your parents forsake you. So he is a great example for us, but he's also a work in progress. He's wrestling, he's dealing with the realities of life in this broken world. You can also see that he cries out for counsel and guidance in verse 11 when he says, Teach me your way. Teach me your way, O Lord. And lead me on the level path. Why? Because of my enemies. How do you make sense of that? Teach me your way because of my enemies. I take that to mean there is no example out there of your goodness. When I look around, as far as my eyes can see, what I see pressing in on me, what I see plenty of is evildoers. People not walking in the ways of God. I have plenty of examples of that. I have plenty of examples of ungodliness. I need to figure out how to live in the level way. I need to figure out how do I live unto God. So he calls out to God and says, Lord, 
you be my counselor. You be my mentor. You take me by the hand and disciple me with your truth. So the Psalms gives us real answers. It tells us this is what you should do. But the beautiful thing of it too is that it also gives you room to grow. God calls us to trust in Him even in the midst of really intense situations, right? But he also gives us room to learn how to trust him. I could be real self-condemning of my attitude in the boat, but then there's also this reality of, hey, you know what? Thank God that he has given us his psalms, that he's given us his word, and that he's patient with us, and he says, I want to lead you. I want to instruct you. I want to teach you what it means to live a godly life. He doesn't expect that you're just going to wake up one day, say that you're a Christian, and then boom, everything is perfect. There's a growth that goes with it. And we rejoice in that. We rejoice in the God who gives us real answers, but also gives us room to grow unto Him. We learn to trust Him by testing Him. And then when we see his deliverance, we trust him more, right? And that's the growth process. So let's spend some time, probably the majority of our time here, exploring the connection between David's problems and his solution. He has real problems that are facing. He has real reason for fear, for anxiety, And then he says, one thing I've asked of the Lord, that I will seek after, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to dwell in his house all the days of my life, to inquire in his temple. What's the connection? How does this make sense? By the way, I agonized over this. I really did. I wrestled with this one, and I'm sure I've just basically scratched the surface of it. There's probably so much more. But here's one answer. I'm going to give you two answers. Here's one answer. First is, I need, and I'm going to suggest we all need, to be more convinced that my greatest need is to see the beauty of God and to behold His glory. I need, and I think God's people, and I would say all humankind, need to be more convinced that your greatest need and your greatest priority is to see the beauty of God and to behold His glory. If this is a relevant priority when your life is being threatened, as it is for David, then isn't it the relevant priority for all of life. And this passage not only suggests that there's great practicality, there's great solution in seeing the beauty of God, but it also goes a step further. I think it suggests humankind, human beings want and long for beauty. I remember the movie Dead Poets Society. I saw it probably 20 years ago. 
And the one part that really stuck out to me was when the teacher kind of gathers all of his students together, and he says, math and science, these are necessary, this is to, to the extent or the gist of it, math and science, these are necessary endeavors for life, but beauty, this is what we live life for. It makes life worth living. Your heart longs for beauty. You go to the ocean because you want to encounter the transcendent, to see something beautiful and big and massive that transcends you. You go to the Grand Canyon so that you can stand in awe, so that you can totally forget about yourself and be entranced with glory, to be fixed on beauty. You plan your life around all the other ways that you get to look on and behold beauty. Do you not? Now, culturally, we're trained to act and to think that life climaxes when we ourselves hit center stage. All of the social media platforms and the message of our day puts you right smack dab at the middle of all reality and says, when you hit center stage, then you've lived. And the biblical reality is quite opposite from that. The biblical reality says that true freedom happens when you're so lost in beauty, when you're so captured with glory, that you forget yourself and that you would even be willing to live and sacrifice for it. Isn't that when life really happens? When you've been so captured by something that is glorious and beautiful and awe-inspiring that you've lost yourself even to the point where you not only live for it, but you're willing to die for it. That you'd give it all away. And our culture celebrates this too. When you see on the news, you see stories about the person who fell through the ice and then the other person that came along and sacrificed their well-being and put themselves in harm's way so that they could save that person. Beauty inspires us to live sacrificially, but there's also something beautiful in sacrifice. Sacrificial love, is there not? We highlight these stories culturally because they're beautiful. We haven't seen the story yet on the news coming up at 6. We're going to talk about the selfish, self-centered person who just stood there and watched them drown. Could you imagine panning over to the interview? Yeah, well, the, uh, the water was cold. And I know they're important, but, you know, I'm pretty important too. That's the opposite of beauty. That's repulsive to us which is, by the way, the interesting cultural schizophrenia that we live within. You're the center of reality, yet the stories we really celebrate are the ones where we say, not me, something greater. Right? I would like to convince us that this is so because we were created in the image of the beautiful and glorious God. This is why we long for beauty. 
And you were made to behold beauty. You were made to live in the presence of this beautiful God. And we tend to think culturally of beauty in physical terms, what is externally pleasing to the eye. Okay, so that is a component of beauty for sure. But I don't think it is the primary, not even the majority of what biblical beauty is really getting at. Scripture tells us that beauty comes from God's character. It tells us that it comes from seeing His excellence and His worth. All beauty emanates from the character of God. It tells us also that the pinnacle of beauty is seen in His sacrificial love. When he gives his son for sinners, and when Jesus lays down his life to forgive his enemies, this is the portal through which beauty shines brightest. The gospel of Jesus, brothers and sisters, the salvation of God is beautiful. And here, David, facing real issues, he says, the one thing I want and the one thing I will seek after is God's presence, to be in his house, to gaze upon his beauty, to see and behold him. Now, in the temple, in God's house, I want to explore this for just a minute. What does David see? What does he experience in the temple? The temple in the Old Testament was a place where God's glory was made to dwell. It was a particular dwelling place where God manifested his presence to be with his people. It was a place where it would have been highly protected and marked off so that no evil or vile thing would have been able to enter it. This is why in the New Testament where we see Jesus going into the temple, isn't he just irate with anger when he sees corruption and wickedness going on? He drives it out. The temple is a place where God's order, where his peace has come to dwell. And by the way that it was furnished, it would have been visually beautiful. But even more than that, at the center of the temple would have been the altar where he sees a bull who was perfectly without sin. And this bull now is being slaughtered and the bull is filled up with its blood. And David gets to look on that and he sees a God who is just, a God who will divinely judge sin, a God who does care about evil, a God who is also rich in mercy and filled with grace and steadfast love, a God who is infinitely wise, a God who has found a way to deal with sin and say sin is evil, and yet a God who has found a way to make sinners acceptable in his sight. Do you see the excellence that that David is pointing to? He sees the beauty of God's character. He sees the beauty of his justice. He sees the beauty of his mercy, the beauty of his grace. He sees it all, and he sees it all working together. How can justice and and, and mercy and all these things work together to form salvation? You see, David sees true 
beauty. And not only that, he sees a God who has provided a bull, but he's also looking forward to a God. As we look into this psalm, we see a God who is going to provide not a bull, but his very own son. His very own son who would take on the filth and the ugliness of sinners and in response provide a beautiful garment of righteousness. David sees beauty. He sees a God that he says, this God must be worshipped. This God must be loved with all of my heart and all of my soul. So I encourage you, as this passage encourages us, that we need to become more convinced of our need of seeing God's beauty in our lives. Every day I come face to face with problems. Every day I come face to face with things that make me anxious and fill me with fear. I see those in 2020 vision. And we also have our very clear ideas of how we think that they should be solved and the things that we find ourselves asking for. And by the way, I think, you know, we're preaching from Psalm 27 this morning. I do want to point out that there are points throughout the Psalms and elsewhere in Scripture where there are particular prayer requests being made to God. But we're dealing with Psalm 27 this morning. So is it possible, let me ask, is it possible that you, like David, need more than anything else to see more of God's beauty? Has God become transactional to you? Has it become mechanical? I trust God. He does this. He gives me that. There's another dimension, you know, and that is I love God. I love His beauty. He's beautiful to me. Could it be that over and above all of your problems, whatever they might be, that what you really need is clearer vision into the beauty of God, to have more of God Himself? And on the other hand, I want to, I want to suggest this. One of the gracious designs of God in our problems is that it exposes what we truly love. And whether or not we truly love God. Problems tell us what we really want out of life. Pay attention to your problems. Pay attention to the things that you call problems in your life. And it'll help you expose what you really love. It'll help you answer what you really love, what you really want out of life. They reveal for us whether or not we really love God or if we turn to Him to get what we really want. I don't think that's all they do, but they do that. James 4.3 says, you ask and you don't receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You seek God to get what you really want. You might love comfort, you might love control or power or ease, or success, or status, or security, 
or stability or predictability or dependability or any other such illity to which God becomes subservient to. But maybe these problems are just exposing, this is what I really want out of life. And it's impeding the control that I can have. It's impeding the comfort that I can have. It's impeding whatever else it might be. Perhaps I go back to the question, is it possible that what we really need is to see more of God's beauty? This psalm straightens the trajectory of our life, and it leads us to say with David one thing I have asked, and that I will seek after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. And practically speaking, since we're asking how gazing upon the beauty of God helps David to build confidence and courage, there's real practical help that David finds in this. How does he find real practical help in gazing on the beauty of God? In verse 5, he tells us that God will be to him a a, a shelter, that he will hide him. But even more practically yet, we can talk about how being consumed with your fears, what happens when you're consumed with your fears and you're staring straight at them? What happens when you meditate on them? Don't your fears and the things that might happen someday become bigger and bigger and God smaller and smaller and smaller? Doesn't that happen? and our hearts get consumed with that, imagine what would happen if you get consumed more and more with the beauty and the majesty and the glory of a God who loves you and cares about you. I came across this great quote from Charles Spurgeon. He said, we feel a thousand deaths in fearing just one. He said, doubtless, the shadow of anticipated trouble is a more prolific source of sorrow than the trouble itself. God can spare you of this sorrow when we focus on his beauty and behold his majesty. Okay, a second way that this helps deal with our fear. And I'm going to say the beauty of God causes us to experience the presence of God. If you're seeing the beauty of God, you're probably experiencing the presence of God. Show me a person who is seeing the beauty of the living God, and I'll show you a person who's experiencing his nearness and his presence. And why is the presence of God so important? David points to it. Why is the presence of God so important? Good question. Do you guys know the most common command throughout Scripture? What is it? Fear not. And do you know the most common follow-up, the logical rationale for why we should not fear that is attached to the command, fear not? I am with you. Look that phrase up, and you will see that shot through the entire Bible. Fear not. Why? Because I'm with you. My presence is with you. 
David longs for the temple. Why does he long for the temple? In the Old Testament, I said, this is where God has made his dwelling. This is where he has made his presence known. In fact, even the whole entirety of Scripture is wrapped up on the note of, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That physical structure where God proved his presence was on this earth with mankind. You can imagine for David being on the run, how, long, how he would long for that place where God's perfect peace and glory and order dwelled. A place of peace, a place of tranquility, a place where God's authority was manifest. The world he lived in was a twisted and tangled mess. He longs to experience a place where his perfect, where God's perfect glory dwells. He longs for that place where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. A little piece of heaven right on earth. In the presence of God, there is great security. When David talks about God being a light, in verse 1, he says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. I take that to be very practical. It's possible, as I got to thinking about it, with the darkness of the nights, of the situation that David found himself in, and perhaps they didn't have LED lights, they didn't have the headlamps, right? What would they have used to light their way? Probably torches. You can imagine if you're on the run, you're probably not going to want to have a pack of people carrying torches. That might give you away. But yet, David depended on God through the darkest of nights to lead his steps. And interestingly, throughout his life, he came across Saul. Not once, but twice. Saul was the one who was trying to pursue him. Saul couldn't find him. David found him twice. The Lord is my light and my salvation. His presence will hide me in his shelter. He will direct my steps and guide me every way that I need to go. So let me uh, offer some concluding thoughts. One thing I ask of the Lord, that will I seek after. I want to, obviously I want to I want to persuade us to think that we should more highly prioritize seeking the beauty of God. How do we do that? How do we seek the beauty of God? Now, there's a whole other sermon that could be added to this, but let me offer you, I think, six points. Number one, we should seek God's beauty in prayer. David says, one thing I asked of the Lord. We experience the presence of God. We experience the beauty of God. Through the help of God himself, we need to pray for it. Prioritize this in your prayer life. Number two, seek his beauty by seeing his character through meditation on the word. And perhaps, as I think about it now, through fellowship with other people. When you get together, discuss the beauty of God, discuss the character of God, discuss how God is manifesting himself through the word of God. 
and meditate on the, on the character of God, and by prayer you will see the beauty of God, the excellence and the worth of the living God. Number three, seek his beauty by meditating on his beautiful creation. I'm, I'm very thankful I get to go to the boundary waters after we're done here. Why do people go to the boundary waters anyway? Some of you are really asking that, like, yeah, really, why do you go there? Well, I've, I've thought about this throughout the years, and actually, Eric, you were praying something in one of our meetings. It's untouched by human hands. Once again, a little bit of a temple, a little bit of a sanctuary of God. It gives us a flavor of how God really designed life to be. Not all corrupted and messed up by sinful man. It's a little piece of heaven right here on earth. It gives us an, an example, a little picture, a little foretaste of how God created things to be and how, he would, how things would be if God were completely and utterly in control. And he is completely and utterly in control. Seek his beauty through meditating on his beautiful creation. Number four, seek his beauty through the arts. This is another one that I think we could develop a whole sermon on this. What's a Christian perspective on the arts? And if you are an artistic person, create beautiful things. Seek his beauty in your troubles and in your pain. And seek his beauty as you wait patiently for the Lord. Here's a quote from William Barclay. The word never means talking about patience. Verse 14 says, wait on the Lord. Be strong, let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. What does that mean? Oh, I'll just, uh, you know, take a drive. Life is crashing in all around me. I won't do anything. I'll just seek the beauty of God. That's not going to go well for a lot of us, right? And I don't think that David is talking about passivity in Psalm 27. He's not talking about just oh, passively, let's spiritualize this, let's just seek the beauty of God. No, I think David is actually rolling up his sleeves. He's busy. He's on the run. He's doing things. Here's what he said. The word never means the spirit which sits with folded hands and simply bears things. It is victorious endurance. Wait on the Lord. It is the brave and courageous acceptance of everything life can do to us and the transmuting of events of even the worst into, I'm sorry, and transmuting of even the worst into another step on the upward way. It is the courageous and triumphant ability to bear things which enables a man to pass breaking point and not to break and always to greet the unseen with a cheer. Wait on the Lord. Last thing, and I'll end with this. Look forward to the day when the whole, when the whole earth will be a temple of the living God. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, he has, he has a plan to make all things new. 
the temple and the Old Testament is a, is a theme that is built upon and expound, is expanded throughout the Bible. And in the Old Testament, the temple was one physical location. It had boundaries. It had walls. It had an inside and an outside. But it was to give us a picture of something greater that God was doing. And what is that? It was a picture where no vile thing, no evil thing was allowed to enter, where God's will was perfectly done and his, his presence was perfectly manifested. Do you understand, Christians, do you understand that God intends to make the entire earth his temple? Where no vile thing will enter, where there will be no reason for fear, will there be no cause for anxiety, there is a day coming where God will unite heaven and earth, where God's will will be perfectly done on earth as it is in heaven. Where there will be no place where you can escape the temple of the living God. Every place that you step, you will be inside the temple of the living God where His glory, where His presence is manifest in full display. His beauty will be inescapable. And if you're an unbeliever here this morning, I pray that you would take the Bible on its terms and explore this. Do you not long for a place of complete security? Do you not long for a place where all evil will be done away with? Will there will be no fear? There will be no doubt anymore? Don't you long for that? Deep inside your soul, at the core of your being, you know that this world is corrupted and it's not right. God has a plan to make it right. And it won't just be one little plot of land. It won't just be a building with four walls. It will, be, it will expand as far as the east is from the west. The whole entire earth will be the temple of the living God. That's an amazing reality. And we have that to look forward to. One thing I've asked that I will seek after, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the reality, Lord, of what you are making new in Christ. We thank you that we are in Christ, and even now we can experience your presence through your Holy Spirit wherever you are, wherever we are. And we thank you, Lord God, that you have a plan to unite heaven and earth. You have a plan to expand the borders of the temple so that it it encompasses the entire earth. And we will dwell there forever and ever. That there will be no place where we could escape your presence. There will be no place where we can go outside where there is a vile thing, where there is a thing that is causing us fear. We thank you for this reality. We pray that you would teach us to turn our hearts towards you. We pray that you would teach us, Lord God, to trust in you 
all the more through every situation of life, through every circumstance. We pray, Lord God, that we would prioritize more highly seeing your beauty, to be captured by your love. Train us, teach us, we pray. We are your people, you are our God. We ask this all in Jesus' mighty name, amen.